Welcome to Real World Enterprise Architecture. My name is Reggie. I make my living as an enterprise architect for a multinational corporation. And on this podcast, I discuss the practical ins and outs of enterprise architecture in the real world. In the last episode, we talked about the introduction of the mainframe computer into the enterprise, and with it, the birth of enterprise architecture. I talked about the systems men and how they tried to create a special class of experts that would architect the enterprise, although they didn't use those words. Well, it turns out the world wasn't ready for the systems men. Technology wasn't ready for them. Their concept of an all-knowing management information system was really nothing more than vaporware, and their own ambitions of being high priests of the enterprise would eventually be their undoing. And by the middle of the 1980s, the systems men and their elevated management information systems concept had been abandoned. But the goal of the systems men, the goal of being the architects of the enterprise, the goal of creating a grand unifying theory for the enterprise, as we'll see, would continue to be the battle cry of enterprise architecture religious leaders for a long time. And in fact, it still plagues us today. I tell you these things because I think it's important to understand how we got to where we are. It's important to understand the residue and remnants of our practice. Those things help us to understand what aspects of the enterprise architecture are there for a reason and what aspects are just leftover dreams that are best buried away in history books. And that's why I spent the better part of an episode trying to understand the systems men and their agenda. Now, while the mainframe computer was digging itself into the enterprise quite deeply, in fact, as evidenced by the number of mainframes still in use, Some 10,000 mainframes are still being used today. More than 70% of the Fortune 500 companies still use them today. My company is one of them, so I can attest to the fact that the more we try to get rid of them, the deeper their roots seem to grow. Sometimes it feels like trying to get rid of an old tree stump whose roots seem to have gone right down to bedrock. Anyway, while the mainframe computer was digging itself into the enterprise throughout the 1960s and 70s, There were two other very different technologies that were in the incubation stage, and these two technologies would bend the curve even harder, not just in terms of technology, but also in terms of enterprise architecture. These two technologies were the emergence of the desktop computer and the internet. The desktop computer, more commonly known as the personal computer or just the PC, emerged over 10 years between 1976 and 1986. The first of these devices, devices that would arguably change the world, was Apple's first single board computer, the Apple I, which was released in 1976. It was a homebrew kit that didn't even have a monitor. You had to hook it up to a TV and use a cassette player as a sort of external hard drive. Then there was the Apple II, which was really just a packaged version of the Apple I homebrew kit. The Apple II was released in 1977. The Radio Shack TRS-80, which was also released in 1977, was actually the first complete desktop computer. And then there was the IBM PC released in 1981, which was the first computer to use Microsoft's operating system, MS-DOS, at the time. Not to be outdone, Apple gave us the Mac, the first computer to use a mouse, which was announced in true Apple style at the 1984 Super Bowl. But the first truly affordable desktop computer was released by Compaq in 1986. It was the first computer to use the Intel microprocessor, the chip that still dominates the computing market today. 
The Compact was the first PC I owned, which I got as an adult. I was the last generation of college students that went through college without a computer. My high school had an Apple II, but it was for the gifted and talented program, and I was deemed to be neither gifted or talented. So I saw it in the back room of the library where the gifted and talented kids hung out. The introduction of the PC was significant for the enterprise. By the mid-70s, secretaries were already being replaced by word processing professionals who used dedicated word processing machines, special purpose desktop computers that were only capable of performing word processing. Of course, by the mid-80s, these special purpose machines would be replaced by the general purpose PC running word processing software. The replacement of the dedicated word processor by word processing software on the PC was a truly important inflection point in the enterprise. Professionals of all types, from accountants to managers to engineers to salespeople, would embrace the convenience and power of the PC. They would start to do their own word processing, first using a program called WordStar, which was made for the TRS-80 and would later be replaced by WordPerfect with the introduction of MS-DOS and the IBM PC and then finally Microsoft Word. These professionals, I'm talking about the accountants and managers and engineers and salespeople, would also embrace two other important types of software that ran on the PC, presentation software and spreadsheets. What we know today as PowerPoint was originally known as Presenter and was actually designed for the Mac. Microsoft bought Presenter three months after its release in 1987 and changed the name to PowerPoint. PowerPoint and the Apple variant Keynote or open source variants like LibreOffice Impress or the web application Google Slides, all these apps meant that professionals no longer had to rely on media people to make graphic aids for their presentations. And what we know today is Excel, or Apple Numbers if you prefer, or if you're a fan of the Google ecosystem, then Google Sheets. These all owe their existence to the first spreadsheet application, VisiCalc, which was shipped with the Apple II in the late 1970s. VisiCalc was overtaken by Lotus 1-2-3 in the 1980s and then Excel in the late 80s. The spreadsheet literally turned anyone with a PC into a data calculation and analysis expert. Okay, maybe not experts, but certainly do-it-yourselfers. The real effect of the PC in the enterprise was to put basic information technology in the hands of individual employees spread in every nook and cranny of the enterprise. And that was different. And that effect would be amplified when we connected the PC to other PCs and mainframes and servers. That connective tissue would be supplied first by internal networks and later the internet. The internet, for all its explosive power and growth, started out as a slow burn. The initial research started in the 1960s, about the same time as the introduction of the mainframe. It's a history that I suspect many of you might be familiar with. It started as a tiny U.S. government research project, and even though we like to think that its early pioneers didn't understand its commercial potential, that's really not true. The researchers wanted to keep it in the government research domain, and they didn't want to limit it to just government purposes. They wanted to limit it to government research purposes. You see, they were afraid that if it went beyond the government research domain, they would lose control of it and not be able to shape it for their own purposes. That is, the use of the government research community. Well, in hindsight, I guess their fears were well-founded. Just look at the Internet today. The technologies that would be the load-bearing walls of the Internet, networking protocols that power the connections, protocols like TCPIP and X.25 and FTP and BGP, Protocols that standardize the way computers communicate with each other 
and higher level application standards that shape most of the applications we take for granted today. Standards like HTTP and HTML and the URL, which define the way distributed applications are architected, and at least web applications, which today is most distributed applications. And then, of course, there's the web browser itself. All of these technologies provide the fabric that enable computers to be networked, and they serve as the basis for the client-server architecture that still dominates today. These technologies emerged over the better part of 30 years, from the early 60s through the early 90s. The one-two punch of the ubiquitous PC and the global network in the form of the Internet changed the enterprise in a fundamental way, and it would shape enterprise architecture as well. Now, I know it seems like I'm spending a lot of time on the history of computing in the enterprise when I said I was going to talk about the history of enterprise architecture. But as I said in the last episode, I don't think it's possible to really understand the history of the enterprise without understanding what was driving it. And that means understanding the nature of computing in the enterprise. And remember, you can find a lot of background information on the history of the enterprise architecture in the show notes on realworldea.com. So, as we enter the last decade of the 20th century, we see the proliferation of PCs across the enterprise and the networking fabric to connect them and the rise of client-server computing, and the mass distribution of work that previously had been centralized. These things changed the enterprise in a profound way. Prior to the introduction of the PC, word processing had been done by the secretarial pool. Now, that might not mean much to you. I mean, what the hell is word processing anyway? It even sounds secretarial. What we're talking about is business and technical correspondence of all types. Inter-office memos and correspondence between companies, which has largely been replaced by email, and reports and recommendations of all types. When the PCs hit our desk, we started doing these things ourselves. I mean, can you imagine writing out a message by hand on a piece of paper, putting it in a folder and placing it in a box with dozens of other such folders, waiting for someone in the word processing pool to get it to you, then realizing that you'd made a mistake and have to start the whole process again. How about working on a report for weeks, compiling the data, writing it up, going through the iterative review process for producing a final report using such a manual process? Really, that's how it was done prior to the arrival of the PC on every desk in the enterprise. And then there was data analysis. Prior to the spreadsheet, the task of compiling data, organizing it, analyzing, creating charts and graphs was very time-consuming, and that's why we were very selective about what we did. I mean, it really had to be important, and then it often required the support of specialists, database administrators, to find and collect the data, data analysts to organize and analyze the data, media specialists to prepare charts and graphs. The spreadsheet was a real game-changer. The spreadsheet accelerated the collection, analysis, and presentation of data in the enterprise. And then there was the application that even today most of us have a love-hate relationship with. PowerPoint. PowerPoint started out as a way to make graphic aids for presentations. That's, that's what we called it back then, graphic aids. When we think about creating a presentation today, we literally start with PowerPoint, or Keynote if you're an Apple person, or Google Charts if you're in the Google ecosystem. The PowerPoint presentation is literally the presentation. But that's not how it was in the 1980s or earlier. When you thought about giving a presentation, you organized your talking points. 
and then you figured out what graphic age you needed and you either drew them up by hand yourself or using a large presentation board on an easel or hand drew the graphic aid on a transparency and projected it onto a screen with an overhead projector or maybe you enlisted the help of the media department if it was a more formal presentation. It was a very slow and time-consuming process. Presentation software like PowerPoint changed that. Presentation software meant that we could crank out presentations at a moment's notice. Funny, as I'm listening to myself say that, I'm thinking maybe we should go back to the old ways of doing presentations. Maybe. Anyway, the proliferation of the PC along with these applications, word processing applications, spreadsheets, and presentation software, these things disrupted the centralized model of the enterprise. Prior to this disruption, the creation and distribution of information was fairly centralized, and it was a lot slower. I personally witnessed this change firsthand. I started out my career as the disruption was just starting to occur. I remember working without a computer. Then a few of us got computers, and within a few short years, there was a computer on every desk. Then inter-office memos were replaced by inter-office email. Then the internet gave us the ability to exchange email with people outside of our company. I remember compiling and creating a report once. I worked on it for months, literally months, and packaged it up and mailed it to a customer, and they sent me back a typed letter with their response, their comments. Imagine that. The arrival of the PC and the internet and powerful office applications meant that a lot more information was being generated. A lot. Organizational silos still existed, as they do today, and the power was still in individual departments. But there was a lot more information being generated in the silos. And something else happened too. Right on the hills of the PC was a device that was something of a hybrid, part mainframe and part PC. Smaller and less powerful than the mainframe, and bigger and beefier than the humble PC. These devices were called servers. Servers couldn't do anything on their own. They needed a way for people to interact with them, and the PC was perfect for the job. And the proliferation of networks and ultimately the internet would provide the connective tissue to tie the PC and servers all together in a sort of distributed system. The combination of the PC on the front end and the server on the back end was the perfect combo. Although the terms front-end and back-end were still two or three decades away, the makings of the dominant architecture of the enterprise had been born. As servers started to proliferate across the enterprise, they started to replace mainframes as the workhorses of the enterprise. Of course, the mainframes wouldn't go away quietly, and there were just too many enterprise-critical applications running on them. But the mainframe quickly became an expensive asset that served a specific niche. The combination of the PC that sat on every desk and rooms full of servers that hosted mostly enterprise workloads created what would be known as the client-server architecture. And with the rise of client-server computing came the proliferation of enterprise-class applications, enterprise resource planning applications, customer relationship management applications, human resource management applications, engineering design and manufacturing applications, and of course the list goes on and on. Where the systems men had envisioned an all-encompassing and grand unifying management information system, which would be governed by a few sagely experts who reported directly to senior management, what actually emerged was something altogether different. What emerged was pockets of information technology spread throughout every nook and cranny of the enterprise. Where the systems men had envisioned a centralization of information that would allow senior management to have an instantaneous and always accurate picture of the enterprise, what happened was just the opposite. 
The introduction of the PC led to every employee doing their own word processing, doing their own data collection and analysis, packaging and presenting their own messages, and the rise of client-server computing led to the distribution of information across the enterprise, information that was becoming increasingly locked in information silos. And all of this would have a profound effect on the emerging practice of enterprise architecture. So how did all of this shape enterprise architecture? Let's review where we are about the end of the 1980s. PCs have become ubiquitous, with nearly every employee doing work that had previously been, well, sort of centralized. The proliferation of internal networks based on protocols that would form the basis of the internet, and the emergence of powerful servers hosting enterprise applications such as ERP, CRM, and many, many others, led to the dominant computer server architecture. The result of it all was the accelerated generation and dispersion of information throughout the enterprise. As information started to accumulate and disperse in the various systems throughout the enterprise, there arose a need to integrate the information, and a need to integrate systems, and a need to integrate departments. Departments and systems had become enterprise information silos. Organizations were introducing information technology solutions into the enterprise at an increasingly higher rate each organization doing what they saw fit. And all of a sudden, we had ourselves an enterprise alignment problem. And as humans, whenever we encounter a problem, we tend to go back to the way we solved them in the past. And that's exactly what we did when we encountered the full weight of the enterprise alignment problem. We went back to the ideas of the systems men. Well, partly anyway. One remnant of the approach pursued by the systems men, the highly structured top-down linear expert-led approach of architecting the enterprise, was IBM's business systems planning methodology. BSP, as it was called, was an example of a computer maker seizing on the hype to drive their own sales. Now look, I don't mean to disparage IBM here. It's a good idea, generally, to give your customers what they're asking for. All IBM did was respond to the prevailing push of enterprises to transform the way they use computers. That's what good companies do. IBM was a key player in the history of enterprise architecture. In fact, I owe a lot of what I know about large-scale systems and enterprise architecture to the IBM way. I learned my craft as an architect in a business unit that IBM sold off, so my perspective on this process is pretty personal. Okay, so the IBM BSP methodology appeared about the same time the systems men were pushing their approach. In fact, it was probably part of that same sort of push. I talked about this approach in the last episode, an approach that stressed centralization and a technocratic systems-based form of management, an approach that promoted tight integration of functions, transfer from divisional managers to corporate staff experts, an approach that downplayed intuitive management in favor of formalized models and procedures. An approach marked by faith in the virtues of bigness, central planning, rationality, and technology. IBM's BSP methodology was a result of enterprise architecture thinking in the 1960s and 70s. And even as the philosophies of the systems men had started to fall out of vogue in the 1980s, IBM's BSP methodology had managed to survive. The business systems planning methodology looks a hell of a lot like the enterprise architecture playbook that still persists today the playbook I called into question in episode 7. The BSP methodology is a step-by-step process. In fact, 13 steps that start with getting management commitment to transform, then initiating a study to document as-is business processes and data, and the information architecture and system that support the as-is state. 
then interviewing executives to come up with architectural priorities, and compiling it all into a report that forms the basis for the new architecture and a roadmap for implementing it. You see what I mean? It's basically the enterprise architecture playbook that still exists today. Something else happened too, but this something was different, and it would shape enterprise architecture for some time to come. In 1984, a consortium of more than 50 leading companies sponsored a research partnership. It was called the Partnership for Research and Information Systems Management, or PRISM. The companies included names like Texaco, Xerox, AT&T, American Express, Coca-Cola, MetLife, Rockwell, and IBM, to name only a few. These sponsors asked PRISM to focus its research in four key areas. First, integrating information systems in the business. In other words, aligning them. Second, exploring the potential of expert systems, which we've come to know as AI and ML applications today. Third, planning information systems in an end-user environment. And fourth, coming up with approaches to distributed systems architecture to deal with what was called the information system dispersion and interconnection problem. What we're seeing here is a direct response to the challenges these companies were facing, namely the dispersion of information across the enterprise and the need to align information technology with the business. What came out of this research was something called the PRISM Architecture Framework, a simple grid that identified four domains, organization, data, applications, and infrastructure, and four types of things that needed to be captured for each domain. And those things were inventory, principles, models, and standards. The PRISM Architecture Framework is a truly elegant and simple framework, and it shaped enterprise architecture in a profound way. I encourage you to read Roberto Rivera's paper on the PRISM Architecture Framework. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Yet, for all its goodness, the PRISM Framework disappeared into obscurity. Why? Well, the sponsors of the research, and remember there were more than 50 of them, had an agreement that the research was to be considered proprietary among the participants, among the sponsors, releasable only to the sponsors themselves. So the PRISM architecture framework was destined to die behind proprietary walls. But there was a loophole. The agreement said nothing about derivative works. And in 1987, about a year after the PRISM architecture framework was created, an IBM marketing man with a chemistry background who had also served as a naval officer and who had become involved with IBM's business systems planning methodology published a paper in the IBM Systems Journal. The title of the paper was A Framework for Information Systems Architecture. The man's name was John Zachman, and the paper would describe what has widely become known as the Zachman Framework. Now, I don't mean to imply that the Zachman Framework was just an elaborated lift of the PRISM Architecture Framework. It seems logical to me that Zachman would have been working on it in parallel with the PRISM work. I suspect it's a lot like the development of the calculus by both Newton and Leibniz. Now, where the PRISM framework had been a simple 4x4 grid, the Zachman framework was much bigger, a 15x5 grid. So we're already seeing some bloating starting to happen from the original PRISM framework. Then in 1999, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, commonly just referred to as NIST, published the NIST Enterprise Architecture Model, a five-layer reference model that illustrated the interrelationship of business, information system, and technology domains. And in fact, the NIST Enterprise Architecture Model was the first known use of the term Enterprise Architecture. In 1991, the Defense Information Systems Agency, known as DISA, published the Technical Architecture Framework for Information Management, 
which structured information systems architecture into three main concerns, data, applications, and infrastructure. So you see what we're starting to find here is a pattern in all these various frameworks, the separation of concerns, business, data, applications, and the underlying technology infrastructure. In 1993, Stephen Spaywalk wrote an important book, Enterprise Architecture Planning, which defined a process for defining and implementing information architectures in support of the business. And in 1995, the Open Group released the Open Group Architecture Framework, TOGAF. And in fact, TOGAF is still going strong today. TOGAF is considered the de facto enterprise architecture standard, with more than 60% of Fortune 500 companies reportedly using TOGAF, and some 77,000 TOGAF certified enterprise architects. None of these architecture frameworks dictate the breadth and depth of models that need to be captured. They simply define the framework of information that needs to be captured. But architecture modeling has also had a profound effect on the practice of enterprise architecture. And what I'm talking about is the Unified Modeling Language, or UML. As software became more and more complex in the 80s and 90s, rigorous approaches emerged to model what was going on in the software. Software was becoming incredibly complex. Gone were the days when software engineers could just start writing code, especially as we shifted from the simpler functional paradigm to the prevailing object-oriented paradigm we see today. UML was developed by three software engineers working for Rational Software, Grady Bush, Ivar Jacobson, and James Rumbaugh. And it was initially released in 1997. UML was designed from the beginning to deal with the challenging aspects of object-oriented design, namely abstraction, inheritance, polymorphism, and encapsulation. UML does this with 11 different kinds of diagrams, which are typically referred to as models, that collectively describe the structure, behavior, and interaction of the software. So why did UML have such a big impact on enterprise architecture when it was really meant to deal with software design? Well, because almost immediately it was clear that UML could be applied to information systems in general, on a broader scale, and that meant it could be used to model systems at the enterprise level, not just the software level. The challenge with using UML for enterprise architecture is that it's excruciatingly detailed. So what we see here by the end of the 1990s is the confluence of three key tides that would affect enterprise architecture in a profound way. First, there's the IBM Business Systems Planning Methodology, which is rooted in the management information systems movement of the 1960s and 70s, a very linear and mechanistic process rigorously planning the evolution of the enterprise. Second, there's the development and proliferation of comprehensive architecture frameworks to describe every conceivable aspect of enterprise information systems. And third, there's the unified modeling language with its 11 different kinds of models and its detailed and rigorous techniques for capturing any conceivable aspect of the structure, behavior, and interaction of information systems in the enterprise, and with modeling tools to support the development or organization of those models. So, by the end of the 20th century, Enterprise architecture had developed into a rigorous and well-documented approach for architecting an enterprise. It was a practice that had emerged during a slower time, when there were fewer software developers, developing fewer applications, which were developed over longer periods of time, and there was a lot less data, and the business demand for changes was much more predictable. This environment, the environment in which enterprise architects had the luxury of time to do their work, would begin to change as we roll into the 21st century. But we'll get into that next time. 
So until then, get out there and have yourself a good day. And remember, people are people and the world is a messy place. So don't be afraid to get dirty. 